gather today to worship. It's just a great moment to just hang out with you guys, and it's such an honor to be with you even today. And so if you're a guest today, you're new to our church, welcome. My name is Ricky. I'm honored to be the lead pastor here, and we are a church that wants to help you in this community reach higher for the best life that God has for you. And if we can help you, don't hesitate to let us know that. In fact, I'd love to meet you at the end of our service. I'll make my way to the back and be at the what is your next step area. And uh, just come by and let me say good morning to you and thank you for being there. Our guest services volunteers are also back there. If we can help you in answering your questions or taking your next step in our church, welcome to Fort Caroline. Let us help you do that. And we're closing out a series today about heaven as it is in heaven. And today we're going we're gonna to talk about how to live in light of heaven. We believe that heaven is our home so how do we live in the meantime? What does God expect of us? You know, whenever El Nino deluged Southern California with rains just a few winters ago, the potential of mudslides became a nightmare reality for one family. In the middle of the night, their home was struck by a massive landslide, and it split their home in half. In fact, a sleeping baby in the home was swept out into the darkness of the night with that sea of mud and muck and mire. The parents, of course, were just devastated. They, they ran out into the devastation of their neighborhood, and they started frantically and breathlessly searching for their little baby. They yelled. They called out the name. They trudged through mud all night long, but to no avail. Here's a news report about what happened the next day. Take a look at this. A man who lives here in Montecito, just a few blocks down, told us a very emotional story today. In a flash, he went from witnessing the horror of this tragedy to becoming one of its heroes. First, Berkeley Johnson heard the roar. Then he saw the rush of mud. Coming up from the river was trees just dropping. And then I saw it, and it was probably 20 feet high of just rock and cars and trunks of trees. I just ran for it. We kicked out the, the window there to keep, keep the water pouring out. So we got up on the roof here and huddled up there. Did you think you were going to die? Yeah. yeah, potentially. The wall of dirt and debris left his home and his neighborhood devastated. Power lines down, trees snapped and piled up. But in the darkness, he heard a buried cry of life. We heard this little cry. And I, I don't know how we heard it because it was so loud with all the stuff, but went into this pile and down in that muck in the middle of nowhere was a little, little baby, little, this little child just in the mud up to its, you know, tangled in the roots and the metal and the rock. And, uh, I, you know, if we weren't standing within two feet of that thing, we would have never heard it. I mean, so many things had to happen to get to the point where we were standing two feet away. And a fireman got in, grabbed it, pulled it out, it was covered in mud. And it was the girl's okay. The girl's okay. Uh, it's un uh, unbelievable. If you'd seen that, just, there was no way that we should have found that child. And, and probably 15 more minutes it wouldn't have been alive because it was cold and it had been there for a while. What a miracle. What a miracle that this family got their little girl back. In fact, in one of the articles I read, the mom said that she took her little baby in her arms, just that baby covered in the filth. And she said, I held her tight. And then I said, I need to go and clean her up. So she went and they took her to the hospital and they got her cleaned up. And then mom said to a reporter, I'm never letting her play in the mud again. Never. 
And you know, as I, I remember that story, that news event, it reminds me of how God in grace has saved us from our sin. You know, the Old Testament psalm writer said that God has reached down in his grace and he has lifted us up out of the miry clay and he has established us on the rock of salvation. And that's a picture of what God does for us when we place our faith in Jesus. He comes searching for us in the devastation of sin and he finds us by his grace and he rescues us and he saves us and he cleans us up and he makes us fit for a relationship with him and with heaven. And out of gratitude, we want to live as Christians with just thankfulness in our hearts. And we want to say, I don't want to go back into the muck and the mud and the mire of sin that he saved me from. That we want to live lives that are a blessing to God and that demonstrate we recognize how gracious God has been in saving us. And yet, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you know how tempting it is to go back to that old way of living before Jesus saved you, to get back into the muck and mud and mire of sin that devastates our lives, but he saved us from. We want to live for God, but often we get pulled away by our temptations. And our attitudes are not always what they ought to be. And the actions of our lives are not pleasing to God. And we find ourselves, once again, doing things that Jesus died for on the cross. We commit sins that we know are not pleasing to him. And deep down, we know it doesn't bring us satisfaction. Maybe there's a temporary pleasure that comes. But usually after that, there's guilt and shame and remorse. Whenever we go back into the sin that Jesus saved us from, we hurt ourselves. We hurt other people, maybe our family or friends. We certainly hurt the heart of God who loves us and who gave his own son to die for us on the cross. And because of that, we know we ought to stay out of sin. We ought to live lives that please God, but often we don't. And has it ever occurred to you that not only does it break the heart of God and disappoint ourselves and disappoint others whenever we go back into sinful ways of living, does it occur to us that it also disappoints people who don't believe in Jesus? They hear us making professions of faith about the life-changing, transforming power of Jesus. And then they don't see that transforming power evident in our lives. When they find us living as hypocrites or when they find us living less than Christ-like lives, it often gives them the excuse they are looking for to say, see, it doesn't work. Doesn't work. It didn't change his life, didn't change her attitude. If that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. In fact, so many people today don't attend church anymore because they've met Christians out in the wild Monday through Saturday. And they see a dichotomy between how we say what we believe and how we behave during the week. And it causes them to stumble. And when we go back into the sin that God saved us from, we become a disgrace to his grace. Rather than making the gospel of Jesus look attractive, we repel people from it. And we give them excuses to not trust in Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And the reason I'm bringing this up today at the end of this message series on heaven is because 
I believe if we truly know that heaven is real, we will want to see as many people go there with us as possible. And one of the ways that we can hinder people from hearing the gospel and believing the gospel is by living inauthentic lives where we are not showing the transforming power of Jesus in our personal lives. That our witness, our testimony, our reputation can either make the gospel look attractive or it can repel people. So I want to be a, a child of God. And I think you, that's the reason you're here this morning, is that you want to be the person God wants you to be. You want to live a life that is pleasing to Him. And you want to live a life that doesn't go back into the sinful ways of thinking or acting that Jesus has rescued us from. But this out of heaven, it's going to be a constant struggle that we're going to have to fight. We're going to have to constantly be reminded to not become a disgrace to God's grace by going back into sin. So maybe this morning you're not a Christian. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're checking out this Christ thing. And maybe you would say, I can relate to that, that I've seen a lot of Christians not living up to what they say they believe. I see how they act on Facebook. I, I, I look at their Twitter tirades, and, and I, I see how they treat people at the office. And I don't see anything in that that I'm attracted to. If that's what it means to be a Christian, I'm not interested. I, we apologize because you are right to expect Christians to live differently. Now, that doesn't mean Christians are perfect, and I think you would know that. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you know that there's no perfect person in this world. In fact, we Christians believe the only perfect person who ever lived our world crucified. That was Jesus. But you are right to expect us to live a little differently based on our our trust in Jesus as Savior. And so what a great day for you to be here if you're not a Christian, because this message I'm going to share today is just for Christians. I mean, we're going to go to the New Testament book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. You'll open your Bible, or I'll put it up on the screen as well. But it was written to Christians. So if you're not a Christian, you get to sit back and relax and say, that doesn't apply to me. This wasn't written to me. And now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can say, I now know what to hold Christians to. I know the standard that Christians are supposed to live up to. Now, if you're not a Christian, I don't want you to misunderstand me. My desire is by the end of the day, you will put your faith in Jesus because of who he is and what he has done for you. Don't let people who are Christians push you away from the one that really is important, and that's Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. But if you are a Christian today, guess what? What we're going to read today, it's not a suggestion we believe this is absolutely an obligation for us as followers of Jesus to live in such a way in the light of heaven that we are not a disgrace to God's grace. Now to set the context of what we're going to read, remember who's writing this letter we call the book of Titus. It's really a personal letter. It was written by the apostle Paul, a follower of Jesus in the first century. He's probably writing this letter somewhere in the mid-60s A.D., and he's writing it to a man named Titus. Titus was a Christian, and he was the pastor of a church on the island of Crete. And the island of Crete had a notorious reputation. It was a place of utter paganism and wickedness. As a matter of fact, before uh, he gets to the verses we're going to read today, he had reminded Titus that even one of the own people from the island of Crete described Cretans this way. 
that they are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> and Paul says, and that's pretty much true, Titus. That's the kind of environment, that's the kind of culture that you are pastoring a church in. That your community is not a godly community. And a lot of these people that you're now pastoring, Titus, came out of that culture. And you need to remind them, don't go back to that old way of living. Don't go back to that old way of thinking. If you do that, all these other people on the island of Crete are going to say, see, Jesus didn't make a difference in his life or her life. I don't need it because it won't make a difference in my life. And so the reason Paul is writing this letter, among other things, is to implore Titus and the church he is serving to not become a disgrace to grace by going back into the old sinful way of living, saying, well, I'm saved and my sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven one day, so it doesn't matter really how I live now. No, no, no. He says, don't do that. Keep living for Jesus. Keep fighting the good fight. In fact, he gives us three ways we should live in light of heaven being real. Uh, he first would tell us to live with impartiality. We'll see this in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that we live with impartiality. As we live our lives, we want to make the gospel of Jesus attractive to everyone. Paul would say he, we want to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want the gospel of Jesus to look good by how we live in the eyes of everyone we meet. Here's how he puts it in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I love that verse. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, grace is the defining characteristic of Christianity. If you're checking out Christianity and you want to know what separates Christianity from every other world religion, it is this word grace. Grace means unmerited, undeserved love extended to sinners. Every other world religion says if you want to be right with the deity, here are a list of do's and don'ts. Here are a list of religious practices you need to adhere to. Here's a religious pathway. Here's some meditation. Here are all these things you're going to have to do. And if you do them perfectly, or at least do them good enough, and the good outweighs the bad of your life, then you'll get into the favor of the deity. Christianity comes and says, no, no, none of us are good. And God knows that. And so God, out of his sheer love for us, undeserved by us, is poured out on us. God just gives us his gift of forgiveness as a gift. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. It's all given to you as a gift. And who paid the price for your gift of God's love and forgiveness? Jesus. He died on the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sin. That's grace. In fact, sometimes people try to define grace as God's unmerited favor in the face of great demerit or God's undeserved favor shown to sinners. Some have come up with acrostics to define grace, G-R-A-C-E. One of them says, God's riches at Christ's expense. So God gives you all the riches of his love at the expense of Christ. All you have to do is receive it. When Jesus was describing grace, he, he just told a story rather than gave a definition. Remember in Luke's gospel, he told the story that we call the story of the prodigal son. <clears throat> a father has two sons and the younger son comes to the dad and says, 
I don't want to wait until you are dead to get what's coming to me. I wish you were dead now. Why don't you just give me my inheritance now so I can leave and live my own life? And so the father gave the younger son his share of the inheritance. The son goes out and he spends everything he got on wild partying. He lived it up. Life was grand. Life was great until he was broke. And then he discovered all of his so-called friends were just fair-weather friends. They left when the music stopped and the drinks were no longer being poured and the parties were over. And there is no one to help him now. He's so destitute, he hires himself out. A Jewish boy, now think about this in their culture. A Jewish boy hires himself out to a pagan to tend his pigs. Totally unclean. And there he is slopping hogs. And he's so hungry, he starts thinking about eating what the hogs are eating. That's how desperate, that's how low he is. And in that moment, Jesus says, the boy comes to himself. He finally realizes, what am I doing? Even the servants in my father's household eat better than this. I'm just going to go home. I'm going to tell my father, just let me be one of the servants. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Just let me be a servant. Because I know if, if I could just be a servant, life's better as a servant of my father than out here in this hog pen. So he gets his speech ready. He makes his way home. But little does this young man know, the whole time he's been gone, his father has been looking across the horizon, waiting for his son to come home, longing for his son to come home. And the father runs to him. And and Jewish fathers didn't do that in that culture. It was undignified for an adult male to be seen running in public. But he runs to his son. His son begins his speech, but the father doesn't let him finish. He grabs him, hugs him, kisses him all over his face. And then he yells out to his servants, Bring a robe and put it on this, my disheveled son. Get the ring that signifies his full authority as a son of mine and put it on his finger and kill that fatted calf. We've been getting ready for the feast. For this, my son, who was lost, is now found. We're going to party tonight. Jesus says, that's grace. That's why God sent Jesus That no matter how far you've wandered, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how much you've mistreated God and rebelled against God or just didn't even think about God, it does not change the heart of God. He loves you. And how do we know that God loves you? Because the grace of God has appeared. The word appeared that Paul uses is the Greek word epiphany. I've got to watch my Greek now. Tom has finished Bible college. Luther Rice Bible College is so proud of you, bachelor's degree. Congratulations, Tom. Give him a hand. Good job. And the word epiphany spoke in in secular Greek language of the rising of the sun. So if you're out at the beach and you're looking out and it's darkness, but then when the sun just appears to break the horizon, that is the epiphany. That is the appearing. Sun was always there. You just couldn't see it. But now it has appeared. And the grace of God is eternal, but it has now appeared in the person of God. Of Jesus. He was given in grace and he embodied the undying love of God for us. And the greatest expression of God's love in Jesus is his own death on the cross for you. If that's not a picture of love, I don't know what is. Jesus dying for you and me, sinners, 
When he shouldn't have died, I should be the one under the judgment of God. That is the definition of grace. That is the illustration of grace. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn sinners. He came into the world to save sinners from themselves and to save us from the penalty of our sin, which is separation from God. God's perfect. God is holy. God is righteous. And for him to let us sinful people into a relationship with him would bring sin into heaven. He's not going to do that. He's perfect. So God in grace doesn't say, reach up to me. God in grace reaches down to us in Jesus. And Jesus pays the price so that we could be forgiven and cleansed from our penalty of sin. And we can go to heaven one day. And notice this, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. It's for all people. Paul has just written to Titus about how younger Christian men ought to live and how older Christian men ought to live, how younger Christian women ought to live and how older Christian women ought to live and how even slaves of their day ought to live if they were followers of Jesus. And Paul is saying it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what class, it doesn't matter your social standing, the gospel is for all people. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how young, how old, how good, how bad. Jesus came for all people. This doesn't mean all people are going to be saved, but salvation is for all who will believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. You say, Pastor, what does this have to do with me living with impartiality? Because remember, if I believe heaven is real, I want as many people to go with me as possible. And every person I encounter down here, I don't want to become a disgrace to God's grace so that they might stumble over the gospel of Jesus. I want to live my life in such a way they see Jesus in me. They see the power of the gospel to work in a sinner's life in me so that they recognize if Jesus can save me and change my life, he can save them as well. We want all people to come with us to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we live with impartiality, but he's not finished there. Because he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, comma. Now he's going to continue and tell us why we've been saved. And that is so that we can live now as Christians with purity. We live with impartiality. The gospel's for all people, and I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone else coming to receive Jesus like I have received because Jesus died for every single one of them. And if I don't want to be a stumbling block, I need to live with purity in this life. Here's how he puts it in verse 12. The grace of God that brings salvation is also training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God loves us just the way we are. That's his grace. God doesn't love you if God doesn't love you when. God doesn't love you because. God loves you, period. That's grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited in the face of our great sin. God loves you just the way you are, but once you become a Christian, he loves you too much to leave you that way. Jesus didn't just die to forgive you of your sin, but also to free you from your sin. And Jesus Christ didn't come just to prepare you for the next life. He came to get you right in this life as well. 
Because the only way people will believe that the gospel has the power to influence the next life is to see it influencing this life, in this present age. In other words, if my belief in Jesus doesn't change anything about my life today, what good is it? And so Paul says that the grace of God is training us. Like a school teacher trains a little child, we are being educated. And we're being educated to say no to some things and to say yes to others. First of all, negatively, grace trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We renounce it. You ever heard someone say, I'm going to renounce my citizenship if this happens or if that happens. They mean that I will no longer be identified as a citizen of this country if this happens or that happens. That's to renounce something. And to renounce means I no longer want to be known by that. I no longer want to be connected by that. I no longer want to be identified with that. That will no longer be a part of my life. And grace doesn't say, hey, you're saved, your sins are forgiven, go live like you want to live now. You don't ever have to worry about hell now. No, grace says you're saved, but don't be a disgrace to grace. God didn't save you by grace to give you a license to live any way you want to live. He saved you so that you'll renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is what it says, anything that's not like God. So any attitude or action in my life that is not of God, I need to renounce it. I need to put put it away. If I can't take some attitude or action in my life and say, God, I'm asking you to bless this, then I need to do away with it. If I can't can't just give God my my Twitter password and say, can you bless all this, God, everything I've said on Twitter, can, can you bless that? If he can't, I need to renounce that attitude. If I can't ask God to bless how I'm treating my spouse, if I can't ask God to bless how I'm treating people of the opposite sex or another person, if I can't ask God to bless how I'm handling my money or raising my children or treating my neighbor or acting in traffic or handling my taxes, if I can't say, God, I want you to bless this and smile on it, then it means I need to renounce it because it's not of God. And I could spend all day long giving examples of here's how ungodliness looks in my life or in your life. But can we just cut to the chase? You don't need me nine times out of ten to tell you if something's godly or ungodly. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know. You know because you know his word and you know because you have the spirit of God in you who convicts you and who says, no. When I was a teenager, I worked at... um, Famous footwear when I was 15, uh, or a uh, farmhouse restaurant when I was 15, and I worked at Win dixie in Lake Park, Georgia, store number 32, manager Joel Denton, when I was 16. And I was just a bag boy to start with, and then they let me do some stock, and then he said, I'm going to put you on the express lane. I said, no, no, I don't want to be a cashier, I don't want to do that. Oh, no, you like people, people like you, I'm going to put you on the express lane. And so he puts me on the express lane. Back then it was like eight items or less, remember? You know, so I turn my little light on, wait for my first victim, I mean customer. And, and so, I don't know, some people have trouble counting because on one morning, this, this lady comes up with this buggy overflowing with groceries into my line. And I'm looking at her buggy, and I'm looking at my light. And I'm looking at her buggy, and I'm looking at my light. And finally, as she's putting stuff on my little conveyor belt, 
I said, ma'am, I, I, I'm sorry, but this is the express lane. Uh, one of our other cashiers will be happy to assist you. And she just let me have it. I don't care. You're going to check me out. I don't have time. And she just went off on me. And so I didn't appreciate that. So I just started putting her stuff back in her buggy. <laughs> ma'am, I don't care what you say. I'm not checking you out. This is the express lane. And evidently, my manager saw that that was an awkward situation. And so he came to rescue me. And so he, he kind of calmed the situation down, fixed it. I can't remember exactly what happened. But afterwards, he took me on my break and he says, Now, now Ricky, I, I, I saw kind of that you were losing your temper there. And then he said this, Ricky, that's not how we do things here. Woo! When your manager says, that's not how we do things here, it was his way of saying, that doesn't meet my standard. You need to not do that anymore. And can I tell you, sometimes I think the Holy Spirit through a preacher or a friend or a spouse or a parent in your life or a friend in your life will come alongside of you and there's something that's ungodly and the Spirit of God will say, we don't do that way here as the people of God. That's not how we treat people. That's not how we talk. That's not how we act. That's not how we spend our time. That's not what we look at. That's not what we watch. That's not what we listen to around here as children of God. We have to renounce that ungodliness. And then he says worldly passions. Now immediately our mind goes to sexual lust because the word is lust. But it doesn't just include that. It includes all kinds of lust. Whether it's sensuality or the lust for power or the lust for possessions. Whenever we start lusting for those things, we compromise our standards and we do whatever it takes to get that. So if I have to mistreat people, if I have to compromise my values, if I have to break my parents' rules, then I'm going to do whatever it is to get my power, my pleasure, my prestige. Whatever I need to do to get that, that's more important to me at this moment. And so those worldly lusts, maybe it's a lust for sex, maybe it's a lust for money, maybe it's a lust for people's approval, maybe it's a lust for power. Whatever that is, if it's not of God, we need to renounce it. But the, the negative, saying no, prepares the way for the positive, saying yes. So he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, here's the positive, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He said, you need to say no to some things. And then you need to say yes to some things. Say yes to self-control. Say yes to an upright life and say yes to a godly life. Self-control says, I'm going to stop blaming other people. I'm going to stop blaming culture. I'm going to stop blaming God. I'm going to stop blaming my parents. And I'm going to take responsibility for my actions. I'm going to take responsibility for my emotions. I'm going to take responsibility for my decisions. I'm going to have self-control. So we need to have Self-control, but also we need to live upright lives. And that's what it means. It means to live a life that you can stand up and be proud of. It's a righteous life. You don't have to hide in the dark hoping nobody sees what you're doing. That's not an upright life. An upright life is one that you're not ashamed of. Yeah, I said that. Yeah, I did that. Yes, I believe this. Yes, this is how I live my life. And I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to live an upright life honest life that I don't have to apologize for. I don't have to feel guilty about. And then, of course, godly is the opposite of ungodly. It's whatever looks like God. And how do we know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. 
So try to model your life after him. How did he treat God? How did he treat other people? We try to live a godly life. And then we not only live with impartiality and purity, but notice in verses 13 and 14, we live with expectancy. Because we believe Jesus is coming back one day. And one of the reasons that we want to live a life that is right in his sight now is we know one day we're going to stand before him and give an answer to how we've lived our lives. And so we want to live with expectancy. Paul puts it this way to Titus in verse 13. Waiting for. So grace has appeared in Jesus. It's training us to say no to things, yes to things. And it's helping us as we are waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of our great the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Christians are actually people who believe that Jesus came the first time. That's the first epiphany, Titus 2, verse 11, the grace of God appeared. But he's also going to come a second time. That's the second time Paul uses the word epiphany. The second time Jesus comes back, we will see him in all of his glory, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ in the flesh. And we want to have lived a life that we're not a disgrace to the grace that made his salvation for us possible. And notice he says in verse 14 about Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us. He paid the price. To redeem us from all lawlessness. That's Paul's word of saying wickedness, ungodliness. That Jesus gave his own body on the cross. He died for you. To pay the price for you to be set free from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christians ought not to be known as people who profess to be perfect. But they ought to be known as people who are hungry. Who are zealous to live good lives. Evidenced in what they do and in what they say. That's how Jesus that's why Jesus saved us, is so that we could become more like him. And when we are tempted to run back into the muck and mire that he saved us from, and we give in to those temptations, then we become a disgrace to grace. What is it in your life? What area of your life are you tempted to run back into the mud that you've been rescued from? Is it your thought life? Is it your marriage vows? Is it the way you treat people? Is it the way you look at people of a different race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation? And whenever you look at them, there's nothing godly about your attitude. Where is it that you are being tempted to go back into the muck and mire that Jesus saved you from? Wherever that is, you need to see it. And you need to renounce it. You need to not only say no to some things, but you need to say yes to others. God, today, I want to live a life that is self-controlled, that is upright, that is godly, that is pleasing to you, so that when Jesus comes back, I'm not a disgrace to grace that saved me. And I'll have nothing to regret. I don't know what that is for you. I know what it is for me. But I'm praying that today, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, that we will let God draw us back to this commitment. I will live in such a way that I'm not going to be a disgrace to grace.
I know I'm not going to be perfect this side of heaven, but I want to be known as a person who is zealous for a good life, hungry for good works. I want to live a life that is pleasing to God. And the, the upside of that is even unbelievers who see that will be attracted to the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, I pray that for every one of us who are followers of Christ, that we would recognize the great gift of your love embodied in Jesus as he dies on a cross for our sin, for us. And as he rose from the dead on the third day, and that he reached into the muck and mire of our sin, and he rescued us. We know that nothing will ever change our salvation, but so often we go and roll around in the very sin that he saved us from. God, forgive us, but by your grace, by your power, by your Holy Spirit, through the con context of a local church like this and our Christian friends, help us to make a commitment today. I want to live a life in such a way I will not be a disgrace to grace. Thank you for your forgiveness and your cleansing. And God, if there's anyone in this room who's never received Christ as Savior, may this be the moment right now where they are to realize they can't earn their way to you, but they can receive your gift of eternal life by placing their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior who died for them on the cross to pay the price for their lawlessness, their wickedness, their ungodliness, their sin. May they turn from it in sorrow and trust in Jesus Christ today. God, if they make that commitment, let them be not ashamed to tell someone or even to tell our church by coming to the Next Step area or using a Let's Connect card to say, today I want you to know I committed my life to Christ. God, we'll rejoice in what you do in all of our lives for the praise and glory of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.